when you think back to the year 2020, what comes to mind? I think most of us will remember the pandemic or supply chain problems, wearing masks and staying home more. Jeffrey Woodkey missed all of that. In the year 2020, he was sleeping outside in the African wilderness every night. He was being mistreated and yelled at. Terrorists would fire weapons at his feet and snakes would encircle him at night. But eventually he did hear about COVID and he worried about his family back home. And I didn't know if they were alive. I certainly didn't know that we had a place to live. I didn't know anything about anything, literally nothing. I mean, I figured they were dead. From the time I heard about COVID, which is like 2020, I guess, I don't know. I figured my family is gone. I just did, and that was my reality. And I mourned their loss. Jesus never promised his followers an easy path. In fact, he told his disciples that the world would hate them. He sent them out as sheep among wolves. Jesus' words came true in the life of the apostles, and they're still coming true today in the lives of his followers around the world. Join host Todd Nettleton as we hear their inspiring stories and learn how we can help right now on the Voice of the Martyrs Radio Network. Welcome back and thank you for joining us again this week on the Voice of the Martyrs Radio. Last week we heard part one of a conversation with Jeff Woodkey. He told us about doing gospel work and community building in Niger. He was violently abducted and taken to Mali by a terrorist group. He was actually traded between various terrorist groups, including Al-Qaeda. Last week, Jeff told us about his prayer life and the scriptures he tried to remember in captivity. But as we are about to hear, over the course of six and a half years, he got more and more discouraged. If you feel like your prayers have gone unanswered for years, if you feel like you want to serve the Lord, but life just doesn't make sense right now, I pray that you'll find comfort in Jeff's story. Hope is one of the first things to go. Every time they would come to do a video, they would say, ah, this is going to do it. They want a video. You're going to be out of here uh, two weeks, three weeks, a month. You're, you're going to go home. And then I learned that if you haven't heard any news within a month and a half, that video did not work. And so after, you know, as the years go by and you do these videos, hope just kind of goes out the, the window. And as they lie, they lie. They, they love to lie. You have to live in kind of fantasy land to think that you're actually going to be able to take over a huge chunk of, of Africa and do what you want there and get away with it. And they're pretty good at living in fantasy land. A faith, hope, love. Of these three, love abideth. And that was my experience. I lost my hope. Well, it took a while. My prayers slowly went from eight hours to six hours to four hours. And at the very end, I was physically exhausted and um, emotionally shot, uh, suicidal. And uh, my prayers were 20 minutes. And I said, God, I've been praying for six and a half years. There's plenty of prayers up there. You can just answer one of them. I don't need to pray anymore. I'm going to pray the same thing. And why you're not even listening anyway? Are you even there? But I found that I could not abandon it. I couldn't just give it up altogether. If I would say, I'm not, I'd be angry, I'm not going to pray today, but I, there's just no way that I could do that. How, how long did hope last? I think it was in 2021. 20, 
I was transferred back. I was already in the mountains. I was in the mountains for three and a half years. And uh, I was south of Agalhoc, bouncing between two zones. And I was transferred because airplanes, search planes saw me and um, things got too tense. They moved me north again to the northern zone. And I was in a camp there. And right before I moved from the southern zone to the northern zone, the zone commander gave me a notebook and said, write a letter. The Red Cross is going to get a letter from you to your family and hopefully bring you a letter from your family. I said, oh, okay. So I wrote eight pages to my family. Then, boom, I'm back north in this rock camp. By that time, I couldn't walk without a cane to support myself with. And it was rocky. It was a rock camp up in in a rock outcropping. I was in a cave. And I was just sitting there. It was still rainy season. So it'd be terribly hot and then a lot of mosquitoes when it rained. And then I got, I got sick. And I ended up with malaria that was just latent in me for about a year. One day, one of, these, one of the clowns comes running over to me with this manila envelope and gives me this envelope. So here's the letter for you. I said, what? And so I open it up thinking, oh, it's a Red Cross letter. And I pulled out like three or four different pieces of paper. It took me a minute to figure it out. And I started reading the letter, and it wasn't for me. It was for another hostage. Oh, my. That was just it for me. I was done. I was already very depressed. And, you know, you get, you're all built up. You got a letter from your family, and it's not even for you. Do not trust a message into the hand of a fool, says in Proverbs. So do you, did your letter ever get? No. No. That was it for me. At that point, uh, physically, I was rapidly deteriorating. Emotionally, I was spent. Um, I became suicidal. I started asking them to kill me. And in 2022, I started doing hunger strikes and water strikes, which actually worked. They took the chains off. They got me a radio, got me a bed, got me a watch. I got a video where I could talk to my wife, and I got a video back from her, all because I was hunger striking, and they were trying to keep me alive and trying to keep me motivated. But I didn't care. I mean, there was not thinking I could ever come out of where I was. I was just too messed up. I couldn't ever reintegrate. Did you think about heaven? I mean, were you thinking, like, I just want to go to heaven? Let's, let's. Yeah, that's that's it. There's peace like a river in death. There's no troubles. Uh, my family won't have to deal with this anymore. I won't have to deal with this, this anymore. It's win-win. And I didn't care. I wanted it. So you literally would ask them, like, just shoot me. I'm, Numerous times. I'm out. Whenever I saw anybody was in charge, I'd say, look, your rifle's there. Just get it over with. And what would they say? They'd say, no, 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 you're going to go home. What do you want to do there? I thought you believed in God and all this stuff. And, and so eventually I think that news got up to the big boss and he said, well, you better start trying to take the kinder, general, gentler approach, which was done in increments. I mean, it wasn't like, oh, let's pop the chains off and we're going to be your friends. The, it, like I say, the, the kids and the people on the ground, they continue to be terrible. And so I continued to stop eating, to do whatever I could just to... So the, when you went on the hunger strike, it wasn't, from your perspective, it wasn't a negotiating tactic. It was, I want to die. Like, I'm stopping eating because I want to die. No, no I, I had, had things that I wanted. If I'm going to stay here, I want to talk to my family. 
you can you can have your walkie-talkies, you can have your chains, you can be sh- practicing with your rifle shooting over my head, you know, where I get the metal casing flying all around me, you know, as it flies off the round. You can do all those things and and call me names, and then you'll end up with a dead hostage. You can do those things, or you can have a hostage. You choose. They chose hostage. So it wasn't negotiating, but it's the, it's when you're not afraid to be dead, then it doesn't really matter. You stop eating, your 10th day of your hunger strike, you throw your water away. And three days, you're dead. 72 hours, you're gone. As a hostage, I suddenly have power. And um, it got me what I wanted. But, you know, coping mechanisms, you just don't turn them off when you come out. So, you know, they're, they're issues. When you saw the videos of your family, obviously... That's a good thing. You're seeing your family, but obviously that's also a very painful thing because you're separated from them. How did that affect you? I mean, he was taken on that couch right there with Elsa in the middle and Matthew and Bobby, and they just did it with the, you know, her phone stand. It answered a lot of questions. I didn't know if they were really alive because of COVID and everything else. I'd heard terrible, terrible stories. And I didn't know if they were alive. I certainly didn't know that we had a place to live. I didn't know anything about anything. Literally nothing. I mean, I figured they were dead. Wow. I, from the time I heard about COVID, which is like 2020, I guess, I don't know. I figured my family is gone. And I mourned their loss. I grieved. So seeing them there was fantastic. It was like, wow, they're alive. You know, I learned what my kids were doing. And they could say what they want. It was I'd seen my wife's videos prior, but I hadn't seen one for like two years, I think, or more, three. And when I saw them, they were always, it was always six or more months after they'd been made. And then she always made videos to the captors with maybe a little message to me. But this one was just for me. To the very end when Matthew asked Ira Ali to let me go. And that video actually gave me the courage to put my hunger strikes aside for at least a month. Because then you had you knew you had something to come home to at that point. Yeah. And they were they were giving me assurances, look, we're really working on it. Look, look, look at this. And then, you know, I saw their video. A few days later I did another proof of life. I got a letter from their big boss. Saying, look, we're working hard to get you out of here. And, and, and I'd never had that before. So I didn't really hope, but I thought, well, there's a possibility. But I, I didn't have enough strength emotionally to actually latch onto that. You know, and I told them that. I said, look, if I don't have anything in a month, I'm going back on hunger strike. I did, and I had a big argument with the kids that were holding me. And they started firing at me, shooting at the ground at my feet. And I'm just standing there saying, hey, hit me in the chest. He leveled his aim and he was going to shoot me in the, sh- in the chest, but the other guy grabbed his rifle. And I was so mad. And then uh, 10 days later, I was in that place. Um, if you know anything about West Africa, black plastic bags are everywhere. And uh, I got one of those full of grapes and, and an apple and some other fruit. I got a fruit basket. <laughs> I was like, what's going on? So I eat these grapes. I hadn't had fruit, really, for a long time. 
And I was wondering, well, where do they come from? And the next day, the zone commander comes up and he hands me a letter from the big boss. And he said, did you get the fruit? So it was basically Ali sending me a fruit basket that just didn't arrive with the letter. And he's saying, well, in a week you'll be with your family. And I didn't believe it. I gave it back to the zone commander. I said, this is a lie. You're lying to me again. And he got all mad. No, the Amir never lies. He doesn't lie. Get your stuff. We're leaving now. And they got me to this camp. And I've never seen so many Mujahideen in one place. There were trucks and trucks and trucks full of these guys. And you could tell by how fat they are, how high they rank in the pecking order of things. Because the leaders, the big bosses, they're all, they all got big bellies. And uh, there's all these bosses there. And I'm like, whoa, what's going on here? And so they put me under a tree. And they said, sit here. And there's uh, a guy. I said, what's your name? He said, Olivier Dubois. And I'd been hearing about him on Radio RFI, Radio France Internationale. That was great. And he convinced me. He said, Jeff, look, see all these guys. And he, he's a journalist. They never come out. They never do this unless there's an exchange. A couple days later, we, they put us in a truck, and there were no weapons on that truck. And I'd never been in a Mujahideen. First Mujahedin's. time in six years. Yeah, that six and a half years, thank you. Been in a truck without weapons. Without weapons, weapons. with a Mujahideen wouldn't have a rifle. And they drove us maybe a kilometer. Uh, he, he parks, and I could see another truck way in the distance. It's like, get out. Okay, I get out. I get my stick. I can't really walk. And he does a U-turn, and he's gone. Um, we're, we're not hostages anymore. In front of us, there's two of these plastic mats with a little kind of a sheet in between them. And the guy's, somebody yelling in English to approach the mats and strip. And so I kind of hobbled. I want to do my victory dance, but can't walk. So I kind of did my victory dance. And um, we got there and, you know, they stripped me naked when they took me. I had to get stripped naked when I left and uh, put on the clothes that they had provided. Uh, they did meds. They took us to another location, dropped in a C-130, uh, brought us to Niamey. So how soon after that did you get to talk to Else and say, hey, I'm out? I didn't actually get to speak to Else until probably in the afternoon. I had to borrow a phone, but we were able to f- communicate. I had refeeding syndrome. I wasn't allowed to fly directly. Um, I had to stabilize. My electrolytes had to stabilize. I went to the French med- air base first. I did a lot of medical there. I did medical, medical, medical like five or six times. And I had this long hostage beard. And uh, the French nurse, first woman I've spoken to in six and a half years, she says, well, do you want me to cut your beard for you? I said, I was going to want to show it to my wife. And she looks at me and she says, your wife does not want to see you looking like this. Trust me. <laughs> So the beard came off, the hair stayed crazy. It took probably three or four months. Everything was all just, everything's wonderful. Um, And then, you know, I started to decompress. And I'm still dealing with that. Spiritually, as you're released, were you thanking the Lord? Lord, thank you. 
Was it, Lord, why did you let this go on for six and a half years? How have you kind of processed it spiritually? It made me think a lot I, I, and review my faith. And But I, you know, when I asked them at that airbase, well, you get me a Bible because that was what I wanted so much. And that just broke my heart when I got it. And um, it's good to have the Word of God. Were there things... Like, what was the first passage you wanted to get into and read? I just started reading the Gospel of John. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And I love going to my church. I love worship. And just being with all my my church family. But I'm not going to be in ministry anymore. I mean, I'll do... Both Elsa and I, we want to be able to be an encouragement to people. We want to be able to help people that are hurting. And we're in a position where I can do that. I can speak into people's lives. I can say, look... Here's how you deal with this. Here's how you forgive. Here's how you deal with your trauma. Here's how you deal with your anger. Um, Well, I'm still working on that one. And, you know, here's how you come back from the dead. Because that's what I did. Yeah. I am like Lazarus. But, you know, Lazarus, they took the clothes off him and that was it. We don't hear about Lazarus ever again. So how did Lazarus do it? That's the title of my sermons. I, I give a great message, but... Every time I do it, I leave a piece of myself on the podium. You know, you have to open all the way up. Mm-hmm. I can only do that so much. Yeah. yeah. You know, I'm going to pay for this. I, uh, I had fear of that as we came, uh, and I'm sorry about that. Well, that's okay. I mean, Voice of the Martyrs, what you did for my family and for me, um, it's priceless. So it's the very least I can do. How did it feel when you found out how many people had been praying for you and how many people had, you know, reached out or done... Uh, It's just been amazing. It's very humbling. And, yeah, just so many people prayed around the world, which surprised me. And with with, uh, tenacity. So it's a real good testimony. I can go to those people and I can say, look, you know, you might not believe in miracles, but your prayer accomplished one. So don't give up hope in persevering in prayer because it works and I've continued to pray for the hostages that are still there my goal is to see them all out all you know there's only three left now by God's grace the Italian family is left and I'm praying for them we're going to bring them home and then there's lots of Malian hostages that are still there and there's hostages all around the world but just in the time that I've been here seeing my prayers result in the freedom of I mean I spoke with Gerko this morning you know, when I was at the gym. That's just amazing for me to talk to him like that. I talk with Olivier all the time. You talk about helping people to forgive. There will be people who listen to this who are in that place of needing to forgive and maybe struggling with it. How how do you advise them or how do you help them to... Well, it's like I said at the beginning, forgiveness and love. They're our greatest, some of our greatest strengths as Christians. It's what protects us. It's what allows us to get through this world. If you don't have forgiveness, then you're not going to be able to deal with all the family members that mess you up, your parents who have traumatized you as a kid. There's your relationships, they fall apart. If you can't forgive, these things are going to weigh you down, and you're going to have to carry that person basically with you. Whereas forgiveness allows you to cut the chains. Why would you chain yourself up willingly? And when you don't forgive, that's what you're doing. You're, you're 
you're choosing to put a chain on every day and to drag these people. And it's not a warm fuzzy. It doesn't, it's not a one-shot thing. We're not God. We're not divine. Um, that we can forgive and forget. Because we can't forget, you have to forgive daily, maybe for the rest of your life. But it will allow you to not hate and allow you to heal. And it frees the other person up as well. You mentioned you're praying for the hostages that are still there. Other than we pray for their release, which we, we pray for, how else do you pray for them? Or how can our listeners pray? Well, pray that, that they will have hope, that they'll get news from their families, that they'll get news about um, negotiations, something to lift their spirits, something to help them um, deal with the pressure, um, something to help them resist the constant push to become a Muslim. Pray that they'll just have the strength to get through the day, that they'll have hope to be able to continue on and look forward to something tomorrow. Pray for their captors, that they'll have compassion and be willing to release them even without a ransom or take something less for them. Pray for their families, that they'll have patience and the ability to, uh, to hang in there and to not give up hope. And pray for their minds, that they won't be broken. How do we pray for you and for your family in, in this season for you? Um, this season never seems to end. Like I say, I'm, I'm going to pull back from a lot of ministry things, at least temporarily. Um, I'm a writer. That's what I am now. So just pray that I'm able to do that, to actually publish something. And that my wife and I can heal, and, because neither one of us are the same people that we were when I was taken. Um, and for her, it's like living with a stranger, I think. So yeah, we've got a lot of healing to do. We've got, got to start making some money. And these are all things that you have to deal with here in the United States. I need to get income and get passed by physical and uh, mental issues. Well, we have a lot of listeners who are prayer warriors, and they will pray. I, I can promise you that. Well, I, I appreciate it, and the prayer works. It does. It absolutely does. So I'm proof. And just once again, a plug for... Voice of the Martyrs, uh, your work is priceless. Um, what you do, no one else does. And you do it with love and uh, alacrity and great ability. So you're an organization worthy of support. We've been hearing this week on Voice of the Martyrs Radio from Jeffrey Woodkey. I know it is difficult for us to imagine all that he has endured. But we're told in Romans 12 to weep with those who weep. We're told in Hebrews 13, 3 to remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. I don't think it would be a stretch to extend that to say we are called to hurt with those who are suffering from trauma after being mistreated and imprisoned. And it's helpful for us to get a glimpse into the ongoing hurt that Jeff and other prisoners have experienced. Sometimes on VOM Radio, we bring you stories of people who supernaturally love their enemies, who rejoice in suffering, who draw closer to the Lord while imprisoned. Jeff experienced some of those things, but he's also been very honest about the difficulty of his six-and-a-half-year ordeal. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you're going through a hurt that just doesn't make sense. I hope that you'll cling to the truth of God's word, just like Jeff is doing, even when it's difficult. 
I also hope that you are in community and that you're getting help from other members of the body of Christ. Would you pray for Jeff and pray for his continued healing from this unimaginable suffering? Please also pray for others who are still being held and still being mistreated for their faith in Christ. I think especially of some pastors that I met in Eritrea who are now coming up on 20 years in prison there. To hear more stories of persecuted Christians and God's work in hostile and restricted nations, please come and visit our website, vomradio.net, or find Voice of the Martyrs Radio wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure that you're back with us next week. We're going to hear another side to this story, the point of view of Jeff's wife, Else. We're going to hear how the Lord sustained her, separated from her husband, wondering what was happening to him for six and a half years. I know you'll be encouraged by her faithfulness, so please be back with us next week right here on the Voice of the Martyrs Radio Network.